My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Mark, of course, we have not just one, but two guests on this episode. Of course, you may have seen the title. This is the Juan on Juan podcast today. Uh, my friend Juan, who has his own podcast called the Juan on Juan podcast, and my other friend, Michael Juan, who has a podcast that him and I do together. Uh, it is titled Your Handbook for the Apocalypse, and you can find it on his RSS feed, which is titled Susquehanna Alchemy. That may seem complicated, but there are other shows on Michael Wan's RSS feed aside from the one that him and I do together. There are audio versions of his original YouTube videos, some of his presentations that are timeless and very worthwhile, especially if you like the interviews we've done on this show together, covering the mystical landscape and the esoteric aspects of American history. Uh, Mike is someone who certainly inspired an interest uh, to go further, at least in all those realms. So if you're interested, there's more of that there. And you may also like his friend, our friend, Ross Ben, who he does a show called From the 40th Parallel with. That show is also on that RSS feed, again, titled Susquehanna Alchemy. So just a fun play on words. Juan, on Juan, have actually, Juan has had Michael Juan on his show before, and I don't know, they might have done the same thing. But either way, two friends of mine, two people I've done dozens of shows with and since we just knocked out a milestone 300th episode I figured I would do a sort of extended intro here where I highlighted some of our past interviews that just haven't received the same listenership that we are getting now that's bound to happen with a show like this recently we've doubled our listenership so shout out to all our new listeners, all thousands of thousands of you. I don't 
need to say the number because we're beyond that. Uh, but I'm just very happy to be where we're at and see the show double its numbers in such a short amount of time. You know, just a few months ago, we were only getting half of the listeners that we're getting now per episode. So the show is growing, and that's thanks to you. And since there are so many new listeners, I figured before we get to our interviews today with Juan and Michael Juan, I will play a few clips from the past episodes along with an explanation so that you, the listeners, can go back and hear some of these really excellent interviews that I conducted just in the first 100, 200 episodes of the show. So if you're a new listener and you've only checked out the newer episodes, I understand when I listen to a new podcast, I do the same thing. But I definitely think that there are evergreen episodes in our catalog that are worth going back for. Every time we've interviewed Chris Knowles, that's an episode worth listening to. I think he's been on the show four times now, and the first two interviews were very long, so go and check those out. Brad Olson is another excellent guest and author. I have four of his books. He's a really interesting guy. He's been to Antarctica. I don't know if he's been to the parts that we're curious about here on this show, but I got to have him back on and talk to him about that maybe a little further. Um, so yeah, there's more clips and I'm going to explain who's who uh, after the clip. Um, for people who aren't familiar with the show that I do with Michael Wan, uh, it is again, titled Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. And Mike and I, the style of this podcast, it's unique. It's different than what you might be accustomed to from listening to this show. Him and I conduct these interviews over the phone rather than over Zoom. Uh, so for the most part, our conversations suffer in audio quality. They're not the best audio quality uh, because Mike is usually <laughs> driving in a rural area. Uh, my connection is actually pretty good from where I record. Uh, I don't have that same problem with other phone calls, but whenever I speak with Mike or people who are in a rural area, there's this choppy sort of buzzing noise in the background. I don't know if that's my cell phone provider or what, but uh, that is something to be aware of with that show is that it's a little rough for audio quality, but We've had rough episodes. We've had episodes that are unlistenable, and I don't post those. So just trust that every episode there, uh, if it is posted, it's worth listening to. Uh, if you can't manage to make it through because the audio quality is so bad, I understand. Uh, take that up with Mike. Tell him to get a new phone or whatever. But... Uh, I'm doing my best. So, yeah, just keep that in mind with the second part of this episode. Uh, but now let's go to the clips before we speak with Juan from the One on One podcast about all this crazy Ocean Gate Titanic stuff. Uh, he's been looking into it, and I had some pretty great questions for him. So without further ado, let's get into those clips, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Our close to being identical to those found in South America, most especially at a site called Kiwanaku. The headgear, they have the elongated ears, and they got their hands across their chest. 
just like the Easter Island Maori and other statuary found in Polynesia. When the Dutch discovered Easter Island on Easter Sunday, obviously, they saw that there were two cultures commingling. There were the very tall, fair-skinned, elongated ears. They had big earrings that they wore. And then there was a smaller Polynesian, more of a slave class to the uh, lesser in number they called them long years. And the Dutch made a fatal mistake and they left behind some gunpowder and some guns. And then by the time Captain Cook rediscovered Easter Island several decades later, all the long years got wiped out. That the smaller and larger in number Polynesians were able to acquire those weapons and they killed all of the tall, fair-skinned, with beards, long-eared people. And they also toppled over all the Maori statues. And that was kind of the end of the era. And then it was an ecological catastrophe at that point. They had overused the resources of that small island. And when Captain Cook got there, he noticed that it was just a, a total mess. It had been really destroyed, once again, by the conquering people. And I, I do have the whole story of Easter Island in my sacred places. Wow. Earliest diaries from the Dutch and from Captain Cook telling the story of the long-eared people and how they could have been the Viracocha who were known in South America. In fact, one of the reasons that Pizarro was able to conquer the Inca Empire so easily is they thought he was the returning god, fair skin with a beard, riding on a horse they had never seen before. It, it, it was one of the most lopsided battles in world history that Pizarro and a small group of conquistadors defeated an army of 10,000 men because they caught him by surprise. And then they went right and captured the king, Althawapa, and they demanded gold ransom, which they got, and they still killed the guy. So they were pretty ruthless, and they took down one of the mightiest empires now, the ancient world has ever known, as well as what they did in Central America as well. And yeah. there, again, Cortez and other conquistadors were thought to be the, the gods of the Central American people. Well, have you heard? Um, I mean, this is something I've... Codal. I, I learned really early on, you know, in New Haven, I was a community college student, right, <laughs> on the doorstep of Skull and Bones, and I ran across this character. All right, and that was a clip from episode 39 of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with guest Brad Olson, someone who I knew about way before I ever had any idea I was going to start this podcast. I found his book, Modern Esoteric, Beyond Our Senses, uh, in 2012, 2013, I mean, this was even before I listened to podcasts. I might have been aware of them, but I definitely didn't listen. And, uh, yeah, he was someone who I really was flabbergasted that it was so easy to get in touch with him. I was psyched to interview him, and I surely will reach out to have him back on because... He's a great guest. Tons of books, 10 books. I'm sure he's written more since. Uh, but Beyond Esoteric, Future Esoteric, and Modern Esoteric, 
are the three-part series books that I own. Um, so, yeah, on to the next clip. Of course, go back and listen to that full episode, episode 39. The link to that will be in the description of this episode. All right, next clip. Here we go. That's a lot. It's a lot of dirt to move. The other 800 miles were about uh, 10 to 20 feet across by 5 to 10 feet deep, respectively. And they branched out into other canals. If you go into my last site or just type in the Hohokam ear, ear, uh, Canal, uh, you, you'll pop up some very famous photos and some very famous old maps that were drawn back in the 1800s. And you can see the entire canal network through Phoenix. And they irrigated 100,000 acres of, of, of land. And they built, we started talking this conversation about your monolithic things up there in the Northeast, the New England area. And we had platform mounds, 48 of them all over the Phoenix area. And there's some of them in the Tonto Basin and down by Tucson as well. And 48 of them, and they were, some of them were as big as a football field, 100 yards long by 20, 30 yards across by 20 to 30 feet high. And some of them had, this is big, chunks of dirt that are compacted. And then some of them had smaller ones on top of those and smaller. So they looked like an, an entropic version of a step pyramid or a ziggurat, what they call a ziggurat in the Middle East or a pyramid, you know, but they were flat on top. That happened here. Now, Phoenix sits at the 33rd degree parallel. Phoenix is in a desert. Phoenix has continuous, had continuous water coming in six rivers that would semi-flood, the salt river would flood big time. It would flood out and then it would recede again. And it's some of the oldest civilization on this continent. What other area has, is one of the, one of the, uh, the, the cradles of civilization. It's in a desert with rivers coming by it and they have pyramids there. Egypt, the Middle East, you know, and if you think about it, and this occurred to me one night, sleeping along the uh, the Verde River, listening to the to the river rushing next to me. Both are in deserts. Both have perennial water, and both allow for three to four growing seasons a year. You know, most of the time you can only get like a winter and a summer crop in, especially where you live, right? We get two or three summer crops in here, and then one winter crop, sometimes even four. And we don't have any tropical diseases. We don't have any snow, so we don't spend half the year frozen waiting for, you know, waiting for stuff to come back alive again, which means you're more productive as a species. And you can grow more here. As long as you have water, you can grow, right? Because plants don't care how hot it gets for the most part. You, you're going to find adapted plants. They care how cold it gets when they go to sleep and they can't grow. It is the perfect, the perfect condition for the cradle of life on Earth. So when you're looking at Mesopotamia, when, 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 when you're looking at Babylon, when you're looking at the old places in the Bible, always in the deserts. Cradle civilization, you know, Baghdad, it makes total sense. And then you got to look at Phoenix, Arizona, and we have the exact same thing as the old world as a cradle civilization, only here. Phoenix is a very, very special place. And people are just now, thanks to in part myself for the most part, but there's one other fellow who, who's, 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 who's written a little bit about this. And I don't think even the elites have let people on to how important Phoenix is going to be. We are the fifth largest city in the nation. We're the fastest growing right now. Atlanta and Phoenix, I think, are two of the fastest. Texas growing a little bit, but the big investment is coming into Phoenix. Bill Gates just bought a chunk of land off the west side called um, Belmont. They named it. It's going to be this new magical, mystical city where no one has any um, money. They all use credits and everyone's chipped and there's no cars and, you know, it's this perfect <sighs> Elysium world, you know. We, done, I think in 2000 or 2050, I think they said, but you know, he'll, he'll be gone, but it'll, 
that's his dream anyway. You know, we have GoDaddy or all, all the, the servers and it's slated to grow. It's going to be growing faster and bigger every year here. And, you know, that there's got to be a reason for it. Um, there's a reason why Mason's founded our city. There's a reason why if you turn a map of Phoenix upside down with south facing up, we have one road that the Phoenix is built on a north, south, east, west grid system. And we have one road that comes at a 45 degree angle and that is called Grand Avenue. And it hits Van Buren like this and Van Buren runs east, west. Well, if you take an invisible line and you keep going up to Washington Street and back down, you form this like pyramid cap right there. This invisible, you, 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 you can't see it. But when you get to the, to, the, to the apex of that pyramid on Washington Street, you come halfway down, there's a building right there. And that building is the Montezuma's Grand Mason's Lodge. And it's right there mm-hmm. in the center of that capstone, just like it would be on the dollar bill. Wow. And I wrote an article about it on my website. If you go there, I, I, I outline the whole entire map and the dots and everything. And you can see it. The founding fathers built an invisible capstone into the city of Phoenix with the Grand Mason's Lodge as the all-seeing eye there. And then in 1992, when we expanded the downtown area and we built the, the uh, Diamondback Stadium, if you take the lines and just take your geometry and just go out on the pyramid up and then go right there in the corner where Van Buren meets at Grand Avenue and draw that line straight through the, through the Masonic Lodge and keep going, it'll pass right through the stadium. So they just extended the entire pyramid with the stadium as the new eye. And whereas the apex of the old pyramid stopped on Washington Street, the new one stops at George Washington Carver High School and Cultural Center. And George Washington, of course, was the first president. He was a 33rd degree Scottish Rite Freemason, and he was probably involved in shit we'll never know. But George Washington Carver, not only invented peanut butter, right? And he was a botanist, right? All that good, good stuff. But he was the first African-American grand master of a Masonic Lodge in the country. And that pyramid stops on, 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 on that cultural center slash piece of property there. And you come down. So things are very much in control. There is a hand guiding everything, especially out West. All right. And that was a clip from the great Corey Daniels. I loved having him on the show. I've tried to get him back on. He is Corey Daniels of the Phoenix Enigma. You can go to his website. You could check out his uh, Rockfin channel. I think he also streams. No, you know what? He doesn't have a Rockfin. I think I've made that mistake before. Um, he streams directly to his website, I believe. Um, but go and check the links in that episode to be double sure. That was episode 95. And yeah, hopefully we'll get him back on the show uh, great episode, mysteriously lost about 10 minutes from the conversation. Really sucks because he got into some really great stuff there. I uh, doubt people would even notice uh, listening back, but either way, if you do, that's what happened. Now let's get on to the next clip. Do not think pointing fingers is enough to convince as anyone may do the same. Instead, we request that you consider that we have allegedly communicated at any moment during the day as we have pleased 
have precisely recorded exact locations of anyone at all times, have conjured entire backgrounds, have interrupted a live recording of a broadcast to do nothing other than to alert our presence, have threatened men, have changed our ideolect, and have resorted to clearly automated messaging with marked numbers, yet strangely only regarding the specific podcaster and no other individual. Naturally, we oppose these claims between omnipotent third party or the podcaster distinctly embodying a cheat. We believe an educated guest will bring you to our conclusion. And then they ask what we believe. And I kind of give them the rundown. Like we're, we're in the camp to where we don't know what is true and what is not. They just sent us verbatim the second message they ever sent us, which was Egress Industries is in search of interesting occurrences to research and understand. We are just a curious team. And from there, no more communication whatsoever. They just cut us off right there. Wow. It almost, wow. It almost feels like he stumbled upon, like, like I said earlier, this like sort of shadow operation, whether corporate or government but then like through publicizing it you know maybe yourself and this other podcaster it was like you guys created this sort of like citizens activism that they weren't expecting like because you know the whole operation needs to remain in the shadow all you need to do is shine a light on on it to threaten it right so they they saw this sort of threat and figured, hmm, how can we how can we deal with this? Maybe we'll turn them against each other and then opt out of communication. I mean, and that was a clip from episode. I don't know what number. I'll find out in a moment. Oh, episode one fifty three with Steve and Kyle from the Hollow Sky podcast talking about egress industries a very strange corporation government operation we can't really be sure i don't know if they're sure maybe they found more information we have to get them back on the show as well Uh, but that's our last clip next up we're going to be talking to juan from the one-on-one podcast about this submersible and what happened exactly to it i share my thoughts juan shares his and then we venture into some alchemical strangeness uh, from a couple hundred years ago and then of course part two of this episode is not just part two of this episode it's also part two of the most recent episode of your handbook for the apocalypse so you can go and listen to the part one uh, from that episode as well Uh, But if you listen to the part two first, it's not really a big deal. The part one, uh, the episode audio was very choppy, uh, especially compared to this uh, second part, which is much better. So enjoy that in the second part with our friend Michael Wan. Uh, But right now, let's hear from Wan from the One on One podcast. All right, one, two, three, recording now. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are for a special 411 episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And of course, I had to bring in someone who's a veteran on this platform, someone who I've done dozens of dozens of shows with. And uh, 
Yeah, you know him best from the one-on-one podcast, although he's done many other things, and he's actually working on some books. Some uh, articles are already available. I don't know. What, journals? What, what do we call these? Not articles. They're not journals. What are they? Small books, would you call them? Pamphlets? <laughs> Pamphlet. Yeah, I like pamphlets because I don't like the term zine. I feel like zine is like too like hipster, mm-hmm. trendy. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. Journal. Pamphlet journal is more sophisticated, in my opinion. Mm, yeah, they're kind of like zines. Right on. Well, Juan, Juan Ayala is back. You were just on the show recently, so people know you. Of course, they know we've done tons of shows together. And speaking of shows, you just covered something that I think is a little bit of a distraction. Maybe you'll agree with me on this. Uh, you know, some evidence came out in regards to our... Um, what do we call him? Uh, not f- the first lady of the United States. No, he is the first uh, crackhead son of the United States. And he is uh, in some hot water. He's been in hot water for a long time, but they're covering it up with some cold pressurized water, or at least the story of this. And when I heard the company Ocean Gate, I thought to myself, hmm, maybe, just maybe these rich people sold themselves uh maybe a fake death they bought rather they bought themselves uh a fake death so that they can go and pass on to some hollow earth entrance or some underground bunker something beyond and this is all staged so that you know everyone else is like oh it's so sad that these you know two three people passed away one of them so young but think about that. I mean, this guy's a billionaire. He takes calculated risks, I'm sure. You think he's going to bring his son along so young on such a dangerous journey? What if this is some sort of expedition to, uh, I don't know, hollow earth or uh, beyond the flat earth or wherever else we could be possibly looking at here? What do you think, Juan? Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. And so, yeah, I did do a video on a two and a half hour podcast on that. And they're just, I was kind of trolling on Twitter. I was adding to the fire because I do agree with you. I do agree. It's a type of cover story because where energy goes or where attention goes, energy flows and all these different things. And they are sort of these pseudo homunculus if you will where they charge these things up then they just they destroy them in order to use that energy for other magical purposes we saw this with the balloon a phenomenon along the 33rd parallel the first balloon was uh, along myrtle beach that's along the 33rd parallel which we know that's uh, a thing hold for on them. What, 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 the bloom you talking about algae blooms no, no, the balloon. The oh, Chinese the balloon. balloon. The spy balloon was on the 33rd degree parallel. I didn't remember yeah, that. Myrtle Beach. Thanks. Yeah, along the 33rd. So, uh, and then there's an interesting connection because, right, the that's my next uh, uh, theory that they did fall in through some rift, if you will, because they did lose connection, which the system that was pinging off the location of the submarine is a separate autonomous system that there's no way it could have, if they lose power, that system is going to keep running. Well, they lost the signal and they assumed it was catastrophic failure an hour and 45 minutes into the, into the expedition, according to right the, the sources. 
And then you have James Cameron, an interesting figure, right? JC, uh, who's visited the Titanic wreck 33 times. And he was kind of boasting about it on all these interviews that they were talking. And then at the very end, after everything was done, because I do believe the world's a stage and, you know, we all have our entrances and exits. He was talking about how he had some connections to intelligences that told him that it had actually imploded on Sunday. So they let the entire world do this ritual, this, this charading, this, this acting. Yeah, it's fine. I'm doing a podcast right now. Just put it right there. They did this whole charade and this whole thing, and they kind of let everyone go through the steps in like some sort of ceremony, right? Because it's all about the ceremonial aspect of it. And it turns out that they already knew this whole time that it was that they had died on Sunday. So there's an interesting aspect of there is a there was a religion of because I, I just finished watching the Godzilla movie it was Godzilla versus Kong and how there's like the whole hollow earth thing there and all that stuff. Then you have the Ghislaine Maxwell and how she had a submarine's license as well. And all these wealthy elites have submarine licenses and how the Terramar and all this stuff. Right. And you and I have talked about this before, how they might be accessing portals underneath these islands. And that's why these elites have islands. It could have, it could be portals to these other dimensions, but there's an interesting aspect uh, to the submarine thing because James Cameron and I just recently watched the documentary, he made an expedition to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Now, there are certain religions that they're called mountain-dwelling religions, and they worship mountains. We know this, right? They The mountains are the holy place. You have Mount Simon along the, the 33rd parallel as well, where allegedly these fallen angels came through. Uh, you know, you have the mountain where Noah's Ark, settled, et cetera, et cetera. So you have all these connections, but there is one connection in particular. Uh, the the Shugendo tribe, they were a religious sect and there was, it was a syncretism of Taoism and some other religions. I believe it was during the 8th or ninth century. And they believed that through the climbing of mountains, they would achieve supernatural abilities. Right? They would become shapeshifters. They would get magical powers. And it just makes you think of, right, Aleister Crowley. He was a mountaineer climbing mountains. So it makes sense why all these uh, elites climb Mount Everest and all these different places, right? Well, what if every different peak gives you a different power? And this stems from the, these ancient beliefs that would become shapeshifters. They would, you know, become these sort of wizards, the the magicians in the mountains, if you will. So this now, is like a... I'm sorry to cut you off right when you're about to hit the crescendo, but this is kind of like the same as going underground, maybe like, you know, the opposite of going up well, onto a mountain would be to like descend into the caverns in the earth, right? Maybe a little so safer. It's an inversion. But the one thing that I've seen is that every time they, they reference the Mariana Trench, they always talk about Mount Everest inverted. So instead of how you're saying, instead of making that descent on the way up, you're making it on the way down as some sort of inversion of it. And only a select few have made that, that because why? Because and it, it steps into the realm of what they're trying to get. At. They're trying to regulate that market, similar to how they've regulated the space market, if, if that's a, even a real thing. Or what if you access the space through this underwater? Because, I mean, this is why maybe perhaps NASA does their simulations underwater. I mean, we've seen that before. 
right? The, the, the fake footage, supposedly you see bubbles and all these different things. So what if, again, the, the oceans hold the key, right? As above, so below the waters above and all these different things. And I just found it interesting that they always show Mount Everest inverted. And I go, well, what if these people believe that by going to these places? Because what business do you have going down there, Mark? Mm. What business do you have going down? None whatsoever. I mean, to, to do, to do what? Like I, my dad was talking, he's like, I feel so bad for these people. I go, why? Cause they put themselves in, the, they paid to put themselves in this danger. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like it's one thing if it was, you know, you're on a boat or going somewhere, you know, you're going to the grocery store to get food for your family and then something happened. That's a tragedy. It's like, you put yourself in this position. Now, one of the things was <laughs> I saw a video of the captain or whatever. He's like, yeah, the, the front glass is seven inches thick. And when we're down at the Titanic, it compresses a quarter, I think it's a quarter of an inch. And, you know, before it, before it, it, there's catastrophic failure, it cracks along the side. So I know when it's going to give out before it gives out. So he's talking about that when he knows that, that it's time to change the, plexi, the plexiglass in front of his submarine is when it's starting to crack from all the stress of going down to the Titanic. He knows that's when it's time to change it. When it starts to show the stress cracks around the entire outer perimeter of the damn glass. So I go, you know, there's just something up. And if you think of the idea of, you know, it being a sort of vessel, and I do think everything is linked to alchemy where they're trying to alchemize and transmute reality itself, the world itself through these events. Well, what if, what if the collective conscious made that submarine imploded on itself? And it wasn't that it actually did, but the concentration of everyone's mind on that one point in time at the bottom of our ocean made something happen. You know what I'm saying? Like everyone's fantasizing about what happened to this, this, this vessel, what happened to it. There's countdown timers or when they're going to run out of air, you're counting down someone's death mm. in the mainstream media. Yeah. This, what does that do? This, bro? What, what, what kind of magical sympathetic, magical, effect does that have on on what's going on bro yeah this brings to mind something that michael hoffman tweeted today uh or well not today uh 15 days ago uh, unrelated to your point but sort of connected he was posting this quote based on something about the unabomber but it kind of relates to what you just said uh and the quote is the Greeks practiced a scapegoat ritual employing a human sacrifice, the pharmacos, who was beaten and paraded in the streets before being executed. The Athenians regularly maintained a number of degraded beings at the public expense. They sacrificed these outcasts as scapegoats. Just slightly related, but you get what I'm sort of saying there where you know, possibly the submarine, as you, you put it, you know, is like this uh, focal point for mass consciousness to uh, like a Schrodinger's cat, right? Like this submarine, you don't know until <laughs> you open the box if they lived or died, so to speak. But I mean, here, I think the chances everybody was thinking for were they're going to die. And mm -hmm. that was enough to manifest it. Yeah. Well, it's a 50, 50 polarity, right? So if you have people concentrating on one, it's going to increase that probability. So 
let me show you real quick the picture that I that I shared onto Twitter and it you know it went viral for like my taste. It got thousands of fifty six thousand views on it, and then we did a an episode that got collectively over a hundred thousand hits on it. But you're saying that's thing- too viral for your liking. <laughs> It's not, yeah, I mean, it's not like millions of hits, but this is the, so I got 56,000. That's awesome, dude. So the Ocean Gates Titan submersible, we know that the Titans were imprisoned in a cavity underneath Tartarus. And then you got King Solomon Shamir. And there's an, me as a person who's always looking at symbols and looking at different alchemical pictures and texts, these these things, these archetypes kind of stand out to me uh, more than the regular person. So when I put this out, people were just like losing their mind. They're like, they, they were imploding. They're like, wait, what does that have to do? And then when you start to dig deeper into it, I go, okay. I put this out just for, for fun, right? My caption was, let's add to the fire, not saying anything occult is happening, but, and then the investigators started to come out. Suman. Suleiman was what the 19 year old 19 being a number in in their religion uh, you know Arabic religion that is very significant Suleiman uh, translates to Solomon right the the one in the bible I was like what in the world and then the father's name too translates to to David we know that Solomon is the son of king David right so you have David there's a translation there. The father was also Diawood, so it translates to David, right? He's part of the World Economic Forum. So you have, what are the chances that you have a figure named Solomon in this vessel that looks like King Solomon Shamir, and then the, the actual person's father, biblically and literally, is David? And then not only that, but the lure behind the Shamir is that King Solomon uh, summoned Asmodeus, which we know King Solomon, right? The seven, 72 keys of Solomon with Goetic magic. And it promised him this worm, but that the Lord of the sea would have dominion over it. Only if the Lord of the sea would have dominion over it. Wow. So, That's kind of like, and it's kind of like the, isn't it a biblical story of the man going inside of the whale's stomach too? I mean, you have this Jonah's worm, Arca. whale, I mean, uh-huh. they all kind of have this same morphology of like a big being with a mouth or in a worm's case, maybe it's big proportional to the rest of its body, but right, like these large mouth type creatures. Mm-hmm. And if you think about a submarine, right, I mean, it's it's just a... A capsule that opens up, that's a mouth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're they're put and not only that, but the 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 brazen bull is it? The the metal bull where they put themselves where they would sacrifice people to Moloch in there and they would right the they would burn people inside of it. And it, this does something to the subconscious when you're thinking about these people quite literally maybe suffocating to death. Mm-hmm. You know, what does that do to you? Well, I I think it was more like uh, an instantaneous like implosion, right? Because the amount of pressure. But yeah, I guess uh, you know that if that's the official story, we might not want to 
lend too much credit to it. But yeah, I, I'm curious, you know, considering the this uh, sort of rhyming nature to this story where you have these very wealthy people who are seeking out a, a disaster place where, you know, a very wealthy group of people died a hundred something years ago. I mean, I, I'm not the number guy when it comes to numerology i wonder if there are any connections between the amount of years that have transpired since the titanic i think that was in 1914 um but you know famous infamously jacob astor was put on that ship and died i think it was astor and um you know part of the conspiracy with the titanic is that some of the people who didn't attend or were planning on going but mysteriously didn't show up, they knew that the Titanic was going to sink and they had planned on pretending to go so that their rivals or whoever they wanted to go, you know, would perish, right? So mm-hmm. some sort of calculated uh, sinking, right? I mean, here we have these people who, who knows, maybe uh, from outside are being manipulated to do such a thing. Maybe this guy in the world economic forum, you know, he, is he from India? I mean, that's what his name seems to suggest. I I know India is, you know, uh, sort of as far as global politics goes, you know, maybe not totally teamed up with the European powers. So there might be something going on politically. Which is what happened with the, but the creature of Jekyll Island, that's the whole reason that Titanic supposedly sank, because they were trying to pass the laws for the Federal Reserve. The creature of Jekyll Island, which is a sort if we if we link the corporation to it being an artificially created person, that kind of falls in the whole Frankenstein golem type of thing. And we all use that system. We're all part of that system. And one of the things to add on to what Michael Hoffman was talking about, right? It's funny that in this entire time that this is going down, you know, in a couple of weeks ago, the article started coming in about the artificially created peoples, right? With neither man, uh, you don't need a man or a woman, they're artificially creating people. Uh, and what that does, right, to the ethics of it, does that person have a soul? Does that person have rights? Well, what if, again, this is part of the homunculus lore, if you're able to have a scapegoat, that you artificially created, which is essentially what a homunculus is. You sacrifice the homunculus to extract its magical abilities. You put this at the forefront of everyone's psyche. They charge it up. The idea of talismans involves numbers. Well, the time of day that it happened, the the numbers with which their names equal, right? The coordinates of where the, where it's at. On top of that, it's a graveyard. I mean, the Titanic is a graveyard, essentially, is what it is. So think of the Titanic, right? James Cameron, JC 13, been there 33 times. He boasts about spending more time with the Titanic than the actual captain himself. He boasts about that. What if, again, they're tapping into some sort of talismanic energy with this thing? And the discovery of the Titanic allegedly was by mistake during a secret mission for the Navy. They stumbled across it by mistake. Now, let me let me ask you more about that, because I did hear and this, you know, this is the result of 
listening to podcasts, some podcasts were covering the story, I guess, as it was being covered live on the news, which is interesting because I don't really keep up with what's going on on the news. I don't really find myself in front of a TV that often, but uh, what I heard was that, oh, we don't know where the Titanic is. That's at least what they're saying now. Is that just because it's private information and it's kind of like, a, you know, something that maybe James Cameron and the military know about and maybe James Cameron bought his way into knowing about that or something, right? Like, is that why it was hard to maybe find these people? Because I there was even a TikTok video that got popular about some guy saying, oh, we know where they are because these sharks are pinging on the shark app because they have this app you can track sharks some sharks are tagged right so i guess there was some um, outstanding activity in a certain area that you know maybe noted that sharks who wouldn't otherwise have gone that way are going that way which might indicate some human bodies <laughs> floating around i don't know how sharks and a shark app but the point I'm trying to make is that it seems like there is some sort of mystery about where these people even were, and the whole story is wrapped around, oh, they're at the the site of the Titanic. So he they'd been to the Titanic before. They they there's you can YouTube it. They're the Ocean Gate YouTube, and you can see videos of the actual submersible at the Titanic, and they have 4K footage of the Titanic. So they know where it's at. You know, the idea of we don't know where it's at. We didn't know where it was at before its discovery. And when they stumbled across it, they stumbled across it allegedly looking for two other submarines that had been supposedly shut, shot down uh, or they had been lost by mysterious circumstances. So they were looking for that and they stumbled across the Titanic remains. So again, and it's like how you're saying, uh, even if you do buy yourself into it, only a select few people are able to access that, that area. And secret navy operation maybe the submarines looking for the submarines was a cover story and they were looking for a rift into another dimension i mean we have the the kaiju movies the pacific rim movies where you know there's an interdimensional portal at the bottom of the i think it's the mariana trench <laughs> so it's like they put this and i call it right cinema sorcery the sor the sorcerers of the subconscious where they uh, implant these ideas in your mind and it's like is it are they doing it as a revelation of method type of thing towards a possibility or or what is it charade is it just a, it's a ceremony well, it's a ceremony it does know? yeah it does beg the question like you know is it all just about adventure because i've heard the thought proposed that oh well you know there are no more frontiers we have no more frontiers so we need to go as far deep as we possibly can into the ocean and maybe even the earth we need to go as far away from the earth as possible now. Those are the only frontiers available to Haven't to you seen, as of recently, the scientists mapping out the DMT realm? Oh, my God. <laughs> Have you no. seen that? No, I haven't, but I heard about it. I heard I heard rumors of it, but you're saying that they... Because part of what I heard had to do with dreams, but we don't need multiple tangents because there's a a tangent waiting for us over here <laughs> but yeah no so i do think it was some sort of ritual 100 percent. and it's funny it happened on i suppose now they're saying sunday soul 
Sol, Ol, Mon, right? So it's sort of, uh, and then it's the summer solstice as well. Mm. They spent three days underwater, which is significant, right? Three days in, in the underworld before they were, quote unquote, art, officially, you know, uh, lost or whatever, and that they came to the assumption. Now they're, they're, James Cameron did a movie of this in the 80s, I think it was, The Abyss. Similar to how this vessel went missing in the very deep depths of the ocean. And then it gets into this whole sci-fi thing. But I don't know what it is that they're putting into the subconscious right now, but I, I, it's a distraction from, from how you're saying earlier, like the whole a Biden laptop and all these things. And the, the, the coup, I think it was, over in Russia, that supposedly was happening, but then it didn't really happen. So it's like, what are they doing? And then the accounting error of six point three billion dollars allegedly missing from that they that they overgave to Ukraine or something, right? And I mean, we know what happened last time: the three point two trillion or however much it was went missing before with Donald Rumsfeld, and what ended up happening the day after that they had said that. So, right, maybe this was it. I don't know, dude. This is wild times, but you know that's mm -hmm. what it's like living under a uh, democratic uh, <laughs> president. It seems that shit gets crazy in other countries when we have a democratic president, and shit gets crazy here when we have Donald Trump in office. So <laughs> who knows what's going to happen? Maybe we'll have one of these rhinos in next, and uh, they'll just add to the war effort seems like the rhinos and the, the democratic party are pretty much the same you know these war hawks who are invested in well globalism and uh capitalist monopolies it seems like you know and they figure out all these loopholes to gain control but on a whole nother level a different level a microscopic level we're going to shift focus here because Juan, you're my friend who dives into some really weird occult areas. And that's what I partly uh, appreciate a lot about our conversations is that I don't ever have to explain any of this stuff to you. You just, you get it. You, you pick up on it. And some of this stuff that I'm about to read might be a little dated, just a warning for people, but I think this is interesting and it's worth reading for Juan because, you know, there's some, uh, some interesting connections to what he's well now infamous for researching. So enjoy your pizza, Juan. I'm going to read this. Uh, he is, I'm talking about slices of pizza that he cooked folks. Okay. There is a video proof here, but, uh, until 1836, the English public had never heard of Andrew Cross. And I guarantee most people have never heard of Andrew Cross uh, here now in 2023. So uh, a small circle of friends knew that he lived at a rather dilapidated country seat in the Quantock Hills, where he spent his time and what money an encumbered estate allowed him in electrical experiments his rustic neighbors spoke of him as the thunder and lightning man and shunned his house like the plague, especially after nightfall, it being the subject of a legend that devils surrounded by lightning were then to be seen dancing upon wires encircling its grounds. By the end of 1837, he was reviled from one end of England to the other. He was an atheist, a blasphemer, a reviler, 
a reviler of our holy religion, a disturber of the peace of families, a modern Prometheus, a would-be Frankenstein, a man who had presumptuously attempted to rival the God that made him, and many others of those flowers of speech which generally spread themselves about like leaves, leaves in Vallambrosa during the progress of religious or quasi-religious controversies. Who was this dreadful person and what had he done? He was a simple, honest, and God-fearing man belonging to a class very common in the last century, but increasingly rare in this. In other words, he was a scientific amateur, having the time and money for prolonged experimental work, but gravely handicapped by lack of scientific training and an almost complete ignorance of the work of other men in the same field. So I'm going to skip one or two parts here. Uh, His offense, which incidentally he had not committed, was of an unusual kind. He was accused of having attempted to create living creatures by an electrical process from dead matter, Indeed, it was further laid to his account that he had succeeded in doing so, that he had evolved in poisonous solutions fatal to all normal animal life, numbers of insects of species, acarus, which insects lived, moved, and breed. Actually, he had done this, but he had not done it designedly, and whether what he had done was in effect an artificial production of life remained and remains an open question which he did not attempt to answer. Here are his own words on the subject. As to the appearance of the acari under long-continued electrical action, I have never in thought, word, or deed given any one a right to suppose that I considered them as a creation or even as a formation from inorganic matter. To create is to form a something out of nothing. To annihilate is to reduce that something to a nothing. Both of these, of course, can only be the attributes of the Almighty. In fact, I assure you that most sacredly that I have never dreamed of any theory sufficient to account for their appearance. I confess that I was not a little surprised and am so still and quite as much as I was when the Akari first made their appearance. Again, I have never claimed any merit as attaching to these experiments. It was a matter of chance. I was looking for silicious formations and Akari appeared instead. So the obloquy so freely showered upon Cross left him, left him unmoved, knowing it to be undeserved. He, af- he could afford to despise it. It affected neither his life nor his temper. So uh, basically they're saying people hated him and he really didn't care because he accidentally found out how to do this, right? And he was just trying to tell people about it. And they hated him because they thought he was trying to say God wasn't real or something like that, right? So, <laughs> but um, he wrote two papers, most of which are two papers that are left. The rest of them are not. Um, and uh, yeah. Is there so, pictures of these things by any chance? Yeah, they're, well, the the term is mite. So you could look up mites. I mean, most people have heard of mites before. But what what's going on here is that and I'll read the experiment so people can understand exactly what's going on, uh, is that he put some mineral solutions in a glass container, and then he put a porous stone in that container with the mineral solution, and then he ran electrical current through that. 
And then these insects spawned from the rock. And then he took the rock out and tried it again. And they spawned again in the glass container. And then he cleaned the glass and made sure he baked it in an oven. And he did all this stuff to make sure that there was no like organic matter in the experiment at all. He did it again and the insects formed again. So I don't know if this is of interest to you at all. If it is, maybe I'll keep reading. But I just thought that this was kind well, of a homunculus ex homunculi-esque story. <laughs> it's interesting that you bring this up because Chance and I just got done talking about how life adapts to its environment, if mm -hmm. you will. So at the bottom of the Miranda Trench, they they when they first the first expedition there, the one question that they were always asking is is there life at the bottom? Like, could there be anything at the bottom? Mm. Answer is yes, right? Because the life has adapted to whatever conditions is presented to it at the bottom there. Right. But one of the other things that stands out to me is that Florida is kind of on top of that porous stone like that, right? So mm. Florida, it's all it's all lime, lime rock, limestone underneath of us. And it's the it's the lightning capital of the world. So you have the electrical aspect of it. And then you have occultists like, what's his name? I forget his name. Peter Lavenda talking about how Florida is the best place to summon entities such as Cthulhu and mm. I think that's elder gods. I think that has something to do with what I spoke of with a past guest named Topher Gardner, who's actually mm -hmm. Chance's friend. He's introduced me to him. But um, Topher said that in certain parts of the world, you have either diamagnetic or paramagnetic soil. And Florida and most of like the tropical areas of the world, it's paramagnetic, where there's like a charge that can be generated and carried. Mm -hmm. In a diamagnetic area, that can't happen, right? So that may be a accounting for that you know florida is also a peninsula in between a huge gulf like a gigantic you know i think it's is it the biggest gulf in the world i don't know if it's the biggest gulf. i don't know might be the biggest gulf in the world um unless there's a bigger gulf somewhere in asia but yeah i think it's mm -hmm. the biggest gulf in the world and then the atlantic ocean which the bermuda triangle is right on the other side of that so yeah I, yeah i think lavenda has a point there but the, the Titanic, of course, that's all the way up near, like, Greenland, right? I mean, that's pretty yeah, far up, up north. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, but again, I, I think that whatever's at the, the, the Mariana Trench is also over in the, uh, over on the other side of the world. I mean, completely other side of the world. So Where I think this South just comes Pacific? to show. Yeah, the, it's in the Pacific Ocean. So the Mariana Trench is, let me tell you right now. In a trench, it's the Chinese over. don't own it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's over in the Western Pacific, and it's over by yeah the Philippines. I mean, not, well near Japan and Philippines, and I think that's where they said that like ah the God's, kaiju. God's, that's where the yeah, kaiju, the kaiju come from. And Godzilla and all that stuff. So again, what does that do to the subconscious if you're feeding it well, stuff like? Yeah, and to your point about what lives down there, we have examples on a microscopic level of creatures that can survive extreme 
conditions, whether that's boiling temperatures, you know, freezing temperatures, even tremendous pressure, but whether or not those beings down there are smart as or smarter than some of the other oceans than or other, uh, some of the other ocean creatures, excuse me. I mean, that's up for debate. I mean, what to your point, like what could they actually be looking for down there? Like some super octopus? Like, no, I think they're looking for a gateway to something mm. else, right? I mean, not that I totally stand by all the hollow earth theory stuff, but I think that, you know, expanding earth theory may have some, uh, you know, credit to it. And if that's the case, maybe there are like hollow pockets on the other side of the um, ocean surface or bottom, the bottom of the ocean, right? Maybe there are parts down there where there's oxygen. I'm, I'm mm. totally speculating here, folks, but... Yeah, it does baffle you. Like, is it all about adventure? Because it does seem like a pretty dull place to explore. Like, unless you're an oceanographer and you just love those kind of things, it does seem like a very dull place to explore. Yeah, and then, you know, again, back to these open areas, weird things happen in open areas, right? The jinn live in an open area, so what's going on? And then add a graveyard to that, add 1,500 to 1,800 people who died on that wreck. What does that do to the area? I mean, what kind of paranormal activity is going on in that area from all those people that perished now, at that point in time? You know, Are there still, because like, you know, in a, in a boat, there might be airtight places. Are there still spots within the Titanic that haven't been like, uh, you know, totally flooded with water? I mean, this might be a stupid question, but, you know, I wonder if there are spots where the water I think, can't I think make so, it in. Bro. No, I think that it's all. Yeah, it's all to that point. If there was like a you know something down there that had air in it, maybe there's a big genie inside of it. I don't know. Again, <laughs> speculating, crazy, but <laughs> yeah, no. But I like this. So to add to what you were talking about, so galvanism, mm. right? It, it comes from the term galvanized, Luigi Galvani, and it's the right term invented by 18th century physicist and chemist Alessandro Volta. To refer to the generation of electricity current by chemical action. The term also came to refer to the discoveries of its namesake, specifically the generation of electric current within biological organisms and the con contraction and convulsion of biological muscles upon contact with electric current. Now, you were talking about abiogenesis, which is galvanism influence metaphysical thought in the domain of abiogenesis the underlying process of generation of living forms. Oh. In 1836, it references Andrew Cross, the guy you're talking about, recorded what he referred to as, quote, the perfect insect standing erect on a few bristles which formed its tail, unquote, as having appeared during an experiment where he, wherein he used electricity to produce mineral crystals. And I've heard uh, minerals considered as animals before. I've heard people call them animals before, like oh. some sort of, you know, maybe I, I'm maybe that exists. Yeah, I'm sure. But um, no, I don't. I just mean like I'm sure you've heard that. Not doubting that. But I I would consider them having consciousness. Maybe that's not. Maybe animal is not as exact as just saying they have consciousness. But I guess the uh, at that time, you know, creating minerals out of a solution like growing a crystal was kind of a new thing right now you can buy a kit at like a store for kids and you can like put 
this like little pool of mineral mineral solution in the sunlight or underneath a light or something and then in a few days you have like a crystal that's grown there and it looks pretty cool i've done it before but really? uh yeah it's really interesting it, I, now you know the way they have it you don't need to have like some kind of electrical current i don't remember doing that i think i just left it in the sun and uh it grew it grew pretty big too yeah and that's how crystals form i mean they they form that way naturally in nature under different circumstances of course but uh that is kind of like one of the f wonders of crystallography is that you can grow crystals and they actually tune in with each other like they'll grow based on what other crystals in the world are looking like you know like if if one lab is growing crystals and then another lab in another area uses the same solution to grow crystals there's this assimilation process or a similarity that grows you know I'm not explaining this well, but uh, but so essentially, essentially they're kind of linked. Take. So, so on the topic of crystals and minerals and stuff like that, mm. to link it to the Titanic, the Titanic is actually beaten. It's being eaten up by a bacteria. Oh wow! So it, there's so an underwater bacteria that eats metal. So the back. So right here, the bacteria are unique to the wreck and is currently eating away at the ship's iron, breaking it down and resulting in rusticles visible all over the Whoa. wreck when iron oxidizes. The bacteria gain energy in the form of electrons from the de degradation, uh, degradation of iron that is present in the steel. So there's, it's not withering away because of the elements. It's literally being, it's being eaten by a bacteria Dude. that's specific to the titanic <laughs> see this is this is why we need hope in the world because mother nature can create amazing things i mean look at that you throw a gigantic huge boat i mean at the peak of america's like industrial growth we built this historically huge piece of metal with who knows what else types of materials inside of it and within a hundred years mother nature creates a new bacteria that can eat through iron and steel i mean that's that's incredible i that gives me hope for like uranium waste that's floating around and plastic waste that's floating around well, chernobyl that mushroom that eats up the the radioactivity exactly. i mean again nature adapts to its conditions and it's called halomonas titanica in <laughs> deep water so they wow. literally named it and check this out the lore of that little that little worm was that it was used in the construction of the you know the temples and that it would eat through stone. Well, guess who figured out that the Titanic was be, being eaten by this bacteria? Ocean Gate. <laughs> Ocean Gate, bro. What? So Ocean Gate named it and then they got killed by the Titanic. I don't know if they named it, but they well, uh, uh contributed to the studies of yeah. the how was degrading due to one of their surveys that they went down there. So yeah. in 2021, well, I, I misspoke. They did. They, the Titanic didn't kill them. Their fascination with the Titanic allegedly yes. killed them. But again, Hey, this could be just a very well orchestrated, you know, um, fake faking of their own death so that they can covertly go off to some deep state underground underwater base, or maybe even, something more metaphysical like the you know entrance to atlantis or something you know or the hollow <laughs> earth right i mean 
speculating like crazy this episode. The truth is stranger than fiction, bro. That's that's what I've always well, said. And, and the more you dig into it, the, the weirder it gets. Right. And the thought, you know, with the homunculus seems so out there. But then you find out a story like this Andrew Cross guy. And he's not the other only one. Uh, there's another guy whose name sounds like a competition put on by a sandwich shop. His name is Weeks of Sandwich. His name, last name is Weeks, and he's from Sandwich, and the book calls him Weeks of Sandwich. And I read that for a second. I'm like, are they eating a week's load of sandwiches? Like, what is going on? with this paragraph and then i read further i was like oh okay weeks of sandwich that's his name sandwich is the place so he basically mimicked cross's experiments and took them to the umpteenth for like scientific rigid rigidity and uh mm -hmm. he even like scrubbed all of, all of his equipment and made sure that there was no organic matter at all because the thought was that oh if you have like the dead corpse mm -hmm. of a insect in there somehow that the crystal will just mimic it and that's actually a fact like you can create basically it's called like osmosis uh here it's in the book i'll just read it Whoa, that's crazy. To guess. yeah it's it's uh it's called let's see what it's called it's a process and they use it to make different types of uh like art it's called let's see it's possible to grow artificial forms from dead matter which simulate living bodies in a positively uncanny way. Artificial plants, for example, can be grown in certain solutions which allow formed by a purely mechanical process, osmosis, and they have every appearance of life and can even imitate the properties and movements of organic cells. The osmotic growths, that's the word I was looking for, Produced by Dr. Stephanie Leduc, Leduc or Stephen, must be a French guy. Produced by uh, Dr. Stephen Leduc of Nantes, not only presents the cellular structure of living matter, but reproduce such functions as the absorption of food, metabolism, and the excretion of waste products. So essentially, through osmosis, you can take a dead plant and create what's essentially a living plant that does everything a living plant does aside from i think regenerate right because it says it can ingest food excrete and also metabolize the food so yeah whoa so i i would imagine that it might not per you know prolong would be something that exists very long but yeah that's a very interesting thought so all in this same realm of like weird science and you know only two three four hundred years ago they thought of these things in metaphysical terms and i think it's this like scientism thing that's making us separate when it's all the same you know like mm -hmm. I, the more you look into history the more you see that people have been looking into this strange stuff for a long time and uh the further back you go, it seems the more progress they made with those, these kind of experiments. But I know you've been podcasting all night. Go and check out your recent appearance on uh, Rockfin with Chance on the Interverse, folks. If you're listening to this, go and support us both on Rockfin. Juan's got a Rockfin channel. I've got a Rockfin channel. This will be on Rockfin. Shout out to all our Rockfin people. What's up? 
And uh, yeah, Juan, anything else you want to plug before we wrap up? Any final thoughts on the topics we are discussing? No, like I said, man, it's it's really fascinating, and the that that people like that are the ones that that helped pave the way for what technology and what these different fields are today. You know, biology and the medical system and all that stuff. So, yeah, they were at the forefront of all that. And like I said, there's a lot of strangeness when it when it comes to all that because they didn't really understand what was happening or what was going on. But yeah, I truly enjoy reading and learning about these sort of topics and. Uh, my my final thing if uh, the new homunculus owner's manual for any, anyone who wants to check that out got the history of the homunculus done by paranoid american and uh we got 33 pages of homunculus goodness so check dude. that out i love that dude and you guys got TGLJP. the comic book bug in me because now i have like i have like five or six boxes of comic books it's crazy so I think I need to t- get with Thomas and create something like that, maybe for Skull and Bones, a little like mm-hmm. uh, pamphlet like that, because the art is awesome. If you guys haven't checked out the uh, Chosen One comic book series yet, I am in it. Juan is in it. Our friend Chris is in it. And uh, we can still come out with another issue if you guys buy the and help fund it, because I think it's a pretty cool comic issue i like being in a comic book series i gave one of the uh comics to a local shop that i go to every now and then i was like oh hey check it out i'm in a comic book but uh yeah xg and john your homunculus too by the way yeah all sorts of really good products (laughs) or um not products but you know what i'm saying because sam is working on one too He's mm-hmm. he's got a comic book in the works i know he announced that on a recent episode of tinfoil hat but Again, what, anything you want to promote uh, aside from that? Yeah, tjojp.com. All my stuff is on there. Check it out. And appreciate it, bro. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. I feel like I've been a little rusty. I haven't recorded much lately, so <laughs> thanks for helping break me in. I got like five or six interviews this week. So, folks, stay tuned. We got more to come. Thanks for being here. Go and follow our friend Juan at the One on One Podcast, wherever you're listening to this. and. uh I'll catch you next time. Immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right. And that was part one with Juan from the One on One podcast. Now on to part two with my friend, Michael Juan. Uh, He is the man from Susquehanna Alchemy. You can get a starboard from him. And you can also tune into the show that him and I do together on his podcast feed, Susquehanna Alchemy. That show is titled Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. You can go and listen to the other part of this conversation that you're about to hear. But for now, listen to this and enjoy. Mr. Mark, how are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. Are you on the road? Uh, I'm not on the Completion of our conversation not in the crowded space. So you were in a coffee shop. You didn't want to talk to us on the podcast from the coffee shop. So now you're outside. In the car. Yes, that is cool. Okay, cool. So are we ready? Yeah. Yeah, we're ready. Uh, All right. So this is going to be, we're splicing this on the back end of our previous conversation, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. And this 
from a listener's perspective, this is going to seem just completely seamless, but what they don't know is five days have unfolded since we recorded. Five days. Has it been five days? Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and today's Tuesday. Yeah. Five days. Yeah. Yeah. Five days. And a bunch of things happened over the weekend, which I think fit in nicely to what we were talking about. So I wanted to, to add this in as a, a, a nice final wrap up of our previous conversation. Cool. So can we do so? Be my guest, please. This is, I'm in, I'm anticipating some, uh, some turns, some twists and turns. Twists and turns. Okay. So just to, to recap where I was, uh, I told you the story of the, of, of one, the move out of the house from, from, um, where my eight times live. Yes. The farmhouse down to the river house. And right before I did that, the whole, the interesting thing that occurred with the, rocking chair that the person who bought the rocking chair off of eBay who lived um, two hours away from where we were just so happened who did not know this until he got the chair. Um, he knew the person who built the chair because there was a signature on the back of it. And he, he knew him because 40 years earlier, he worked in the, in the factory is not the right word, but there was like a, wherever it was that they built these chairs. Um, he worked there Craft as a young workshop. Yeah, it's a craft workshop. There we go. And he happened to be the business partner of the of someone who I officiated his wedding five years earlier. And the reason why that was significant was I was officiating a, a, a wedding on Sunday, uh, three days after the move or two days after the move. It was the first wedding which I had officiated since the last, since the one which this guy was business partners with, with the, his, the guy who he's business partners with. All right. This is just me kind of giving a recap because right. I want to, okay. So, all right. So I go to the rehearsal on Friday and remember this, this place where the wedding is occurring is where in the neighborhood where I grew up purely coincidental in Columbia, Maryland, wow. that this, this wedding is taking place in, in, um, you know, it's historic Oakland Manor. I lived in Oakland Mills was the name of the village and it was named after Oakland Manor. So Oakland Manor was a historical building on the land of Howard County, which was acquired to build Columbia, Maryland. And they kept a few handful buildings, and one of them was Oakland Manor. And Oakland Manor currently is used as an event place. So the people who got married, who only knew me through through um, the work I did on the internet, they're not like people who I've known my whole life, or people who are particularly close within my 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 inner circle. Though I have met them in person, uh, they didn't know my history. They didn't know that where they chose to have their wedding was a place that was so connected to my history. And it was a few, it was 90 minutes from where they lived. So, okay. So, so we go there or I go there for the rehearsal. The thing is unfolding. I'm seeing all of this. And I know that, that, that in my mind, 
I'm, I'm looking at the continuity of going from the land um, which was connected to my ancestry at the farmhouse. And now like I am presiding in this, this wedding ceremony in my literal historical homeland, like where I grew up as a boy. I lived there from the ages of um, uh, kindergarten through graduating college. Okay. So I'm there and I'm, I'm stepping into this place. And the first thing that kind of happens or what I recognize was, so I'm the officiant, but there's also a, a wedding planner who's kind of like running the show of how um, a lot of it is being set up. And we go through the rehearsal and I've officiated, this was my fourth wedding, which I've officiated. And this is the first time I've gone through this experience that the, the bride is walked down the aisle and she is presented. She's actually presented by her, um, by her, no, by her brother, because her father, who was a high level Navy scientist died under very historic or mysterious circumstances. <laughs> Woman is convinced is, is like, that's a completely, a completely different topic, but it's very, very, this is one of the reasons why this woman is familiar with my work because she's very interested in alternative history because of the story of which is being said. Wow. Yes. But nonetheless, the brother goes and, and presents, and this is what was said. So there was, he walks down the bride, um, and we're doing, I'm, I'm discovering this the first time in, uh, the rehearsal that this is what we're going to say. And I am to ask who is, who is the, who presents this woman to be married to this man? Like it's the most awkward statement. <laughs> and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is Masonic. It's fuck. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with any of like the Mason, uh, the structures of Masonic ritual, like whether it's like, you know, the Hiram Abiff, like rise, raising the guy out of the, the coffin to like being born again, the initiation is being a, a Freemason. I'm not a Freemason, but a lot of the, their rituals are available online. Um, they have like very specific uh, um, language, which is said, and it's, it's very formal and it sounds very much like this. I'm, I'm kind of laughing to myself. I'm like, all right, this is it. Because like it or not, you know, whatever the, whatever the Freemasons are, uh, it's, inter- it's, it's um, intimately linked to my own personal story because it keeps on showing up. Wait, now, let me ask you this because I, I wasn't clear on something you just said. So you're saying that the part of the wedding ceremony where... Um, well, I guess you as the officiator, uh, say, does anybody object? Was that what you're describing is Masonic? Not at all. No. Okay. What I'm, what, what's I'm this aspect of the ceremony? Cause the only weddings I've been to were multiple years ago when I was very young. So I haven't been to a wedding in at least a decade. So what happens is in the very beginning, the bride is the, there's a procession, hmm, right? Session, right? The 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 usually the 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 groom and then the groomsmen and then the the brides the bridal party and then a flower girl and then they say and then they start playing the wedding march. Here comes the bride and everyone stands up and looks back. Mm-hmm. Okay, when the bride walks down, I mean this is so 
scripted. And traditionally, like when you go and you look at anything that's very, very scripted in our modern paradigm, it's Masonic. Right. If you go and you look at all of the Masonic rituals, I mean, some of the rituals you can go and read about online. They probably have a lot of other rituals which, which are more secretive, but you get a flavor of how they are. They're very scripted and there are words which are said and they're very like, um, they're, they're awkward or at least it's awkward to our modern ear. Hmm. And so how, what happened was is the very beginning of the wedding, the bride, as she's walking down the aisle and everyone's standing and looking and they're playing, here comes the bride. She is being walked down and traditionally it's done by the father of the bride, but because the father is deceased, she's being walked down by the brother. It doesn't matter uh, who it is, but there is an exchange. And the exchange is the officiant asks the person, the man who's bringing the daughter down, like think about this in this like really kind of antiquated way. And it's like, who are you to present this woman to be married to the man? Like, here's the chap. I mean, I'm not, I'm not even saying this in any sort of way of like, you know, this is an archaic thing like marriage. Like that's a totally different sort of conversation. I'm just saying that this, I've done weddings before and I've never done this, this particular right. thing. And it sounds very Masonic and I'm laughing to myself because me, you know, uh, I'm telling the story from the perspective of me being the, the protagonist in the story. Like here I am, I'm playing this Masonic role. I'm the one who's saying those words, right? I'm the one who says, who are you to go and present? Like that would be a Masonic script. Yeah. And I'm laughing about this because these past two years have been so Masonic for me. You know, the presentation of Masonic, like constantly like Masonic, Masonic, Masonic. And here I am stepping in the role as the literal MC, the master of ceremony huh. in this in this sort of like Masonic sort of wedding in this like highly, highly like integrated sort of like experience. Why is it integrated? Because it's lining up with it, with me moving out of the river house, which was part of my father's family line. And that family line is all Masonic. Mm. My father wasn't a Freemason. I don't believe my grandfather was a Freemason, but my great grandfather, my great, great, great grandfather, all of those uncles, they were like very, very high level Masons. I'll go even one step further. I'll throw this out. I've gone and I've looked at all of the history. So Columbia, Maryland, um, the, the developer of Columbia, Maryland in the world of real estate development, he's considered like an all-star. He's very, very well known. His name is James Routes. If you go and you search James Routes, you'll see his name very frequently in the, in the annals of real estate development and city planning and modern urban development, all of this sort of stuff. He invented the shopping mall. He redeveloped like downtown uh, urban landscapes in the early eighties and he developed Columbia. He created the first modern planned city. Um, he is the grandfather of, of actor Edward Norton. He's known for that. Okay. Edward. So Edward Norton grew up in Columbia. He's a handful of years older than I am. Like our, like, like my, like the Columbia is not that big. There are eight high schools. We didn't go to the same high school, but, uh, but like the social circles overlap. Like I know who this kid is and, and so forth, but where it gets really interesting when I was doing my genealogy on the Juan family line and I was seeing all of this Masonic um, connection, I, I could see that it inter, 
interwoven with James Rouse's Masonic family line as well through Hereford, Maryland, like in the 1800s. Like, it's just crazy. Like the guy who goes and invents Columbia, like whatever that means, like there's a strange Masonic connection. So like, this is how this weekend begins. The whole point of me telling you this beginning, right? I didn't plan to go so deep into it, but it was like, there's something strange happening underneath the surface. And in my mind, like so much of what I'm doing is collapsing false timelines and collapsing, collapsing false narratives. It ties into these like Freemasonic curses, multi-generational curses. If you go and you look into like, if you search Freemasonic, breaking Freemasonic curses, like that's a thing. Like, I don't know how true it is, but it, it, what is definitely accurate is that there are a lot of people and a lot of energy that is saying, like, I am the grandchild of Freemasons. And when they became Freemasons, they made oaths which affected their family lines going upstream and downstream. And I'm going through all of these, these reckonings to break the curses. Um. So I... I I don't know if I necessarily want to subscribe to that for me personally, because I think that that could be disempowering, but I'm also open to the idea that there might be something to it. And that was like, kind of like from my, from my perspective of what you and I went through in media, Pennsylvania in January, 2020, or was it 2022? I can't remember. It's 2022. Like it all seems to be connected. So, so that was the kickoff. Like, so this is where I want to go with, with, with the story. But before I go any further, did you have any more questions for clarification as it relates to that Freemasonic link or how it connects? Uh, well, I have, I have some questions, but I don't want to break up the flow. They're more about your, um, your role as an officiant, which I could save those for the end. So go ahead. All right. Um, so, all right. So that was Friday. The wedding is, su- is Sunday. On Saturday, on Saturday, um, Christy and I are going to are going to an engagement party. So wedding weddings are so rich in this weekend, and it's an engagement party of a couple whom we went to Florida. Remember, I went to Florida. I went to Florida twice yeah. this spring winter, but the first time I went, and I went to Venice, Florida, and we went with this other couple, and we did a a starboard synchronization ceremony for them. Okay. This is the couple. Mm. And that synchronization um, ceremony was putting their composite chart, which is the blending of each of their natal charts into one balanced uh, symbol, like the midpoint between each of their suns, the midpoint between each of their moons and all of their heavenly bodies becomes a composite chart. So we did their composite chart with a specific date. And that date was when they were planning on becoming engaged. We knew the engagement date because the, 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 um, who would be the groom, he was planning to ask her to marry them because they were going to be in Scotland. And he was like, we're going to be in Scotland on this day. And on this day, I'm going to ask her to marry me. And can we do this thing on that day? Um, Emily didn't realize all this stuff that was going on, but, but we, but, but she went along with it. We did on the beach in, in, in Venice, Florida, it was this really, really interesting story. So anyway, so slight rabbit trail, but this goes into the synchronization of all that's happening. They go, they get engaged with this beautiful thing in Scotland. They fly, uh, they, upon returning to the United States, they have to fly back 
through um, Ireland and they um, they came back to Ireland. They spent a day in Ireland and they stayed in some small town. And they found out that there was a traditional Irish music festival and traditional I- that weekend. And they didn't know about that in the very small town where they were staying in Ireland. They decided to go and extend their trip, their trip in, um, in Ireland for an extra day so they can see this Irish festival because traditional Irish music was a very, very significant part of their courting process. They listened to traditional Irish music. And in fact, there was one artist in particular who was very, very important to them. And that artist was performing at this festival. So they're like, oh my goodness, like this is so perfect. This is so fucking synchronized part of my language, that we're going to go and stay. And sure enough, they went, they stayed, they went to it, and they told someone when they bought the ticket to go to the event about their story. She told the artist, the artist invited them on stage, and then back <laughs> all of this stuff, like all of this. Whoa. So this is their engagement party. So it's their engagement party. We're going there on Saturday in between the move down from, from like the farmhouse to like, you know, in between the, the rehearsal dinner or the rehearsal and it wasn't rehearsal dinner because it was in the morning and then the actual wedding. So on Saturday we go to their, rehear- their rehearsal and they live at a place called um, uh, Camp Hill Village. Okay. Camp Hill Village, there are many Camp Hill Villages. This is the oldest Camp Hill Village in North America. It's in Kimberton, Pennsylvania. And what a Camp Hill Village is, is it is a village for adults with mental disabilities in a farm-like setting run on Rudolf Steiner principles. So it is this deep esoteric sort of like environment where like, like, you know, mentally disadvantaged adults live there and they live in houses, uh, which are run by, um, able minded. Like I'm trying, I don't know how to say this, but you know, uh, I'm trying to be as, is is neutral with my language, able able-minded adults and that's what Derek and Emily are they live on this on this Steiner village where they practice biodynamic farming there they have like organic uh, dairy farms that on the on the village the the people who live they live in homes where they run like houses for the disadvantaged and I mean it's just this like really really uncommon sort of environment and this is where the party was so it was this mixture of their families of the people who live in the village we go so we go to this this um we go to this camp hill uh uh to their engagement party um at the camp hill villages which is a mixture of their family their friends and all of the people who live in the villages like it's friggin' wild i don't know if you it it if you ever saw, there's a movie called Awakenings with Robin Williams about, which kind of takes place in a, in a mental institution. And this is kind of like that. Like, it's just like, it's both unbelievably pure and it, 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 it's just wild to be there. So we're there. And one of the things which they do at this Camp Hill village is they have a mill where they make like uh, custom lumber, which is beautiful, which they then sell for a lot of the um, their historical houses throughout Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is where this is. So a lot of the wood which would be used for renovation of these houses is made there. They have a traditional organic um, 
a dairy farm, and they also have a bakery. The places like the campus is beautiful, and the architecture and the houses is beautiful. And for this this slash, um, it was both a, uh, an engagement party, and then there was a, a Rudolf Steiner inspired performance that day. They had a um, they had a a table with all of these. Um, baked goods made in the bakery and they were fantastic. And so the reason why I'm bringing this up is the last time I performed a marriage, it was for uh, this couple, Matt and Bridget. Matt and Bridget was, I told you, like Matt is the business partner of the guy who bought the chair just three days earlier, completely like, how does this line up? And this guy like uh, from hours away comes and buys the chair. The chair was from the, from the wood shop, which he used to work at as a child. And he's business partners with Matt, who was the last time I got married. And when I was at Matt and Bridget's um, reception, they had a Tex-Mex, they had a Tex-Mex um, uh, buffet for the reception, and there was this huge bowl, which I thought was whipped cream, and I took a spoonful of the whipped cream. <laughs> I might have told you the story before, and I put it in my mouth, and it turned out to be sour cream. I've told this story many, many times. <laughs> I get to this friggin', I get to this friggin' reception where they have all of this baked goods of these beautiful tarts and these cakes and all this stuff made on there. And they have an entire friggin' bowl of actual whipped cream. So the last time I did a wedding, I had a bowl of sour cream, which I thought was whipped cream, and I put it in my mouth. And here's the craziest thing. I saw Matt that morning. I saw him randomly at, at Central Market in Lancaster. I haven't seen him for years. Like all of this stuff is lining up, and then I go to the I go to the rehearsal dinner or the engagement dinner for for Emily and and Derek, and they have an actual bowl of of whipped cream. Where the last time I was at a wedding, which was Matt, it was a bowl of sour cream, which I thought was whipped cream, <laughs> and finally the whipped cream presents itself, and I'm just like, holy crackers! I'm on the right, I'm on the correct timeline. Wow! This is the timeline I was waiting. So after that happens, then like, I'm just like laughing. Like I can't tell this to anyone because people like, that's good. That's like crazy talk. Right. But I know this inside. So I go in, we are like afterwards, like after the reception, the Emily and Derek's reception, there is a Steiner performance on there. The, 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 the Camp Hill villages, um, performance hall is beautiful. It's built on all of Rudolf Steiner architectural details. It's fantastic. And it is amazing musicians and dancers, and they're coupled with the um, with with the mentally disadvantaged. So you're watching and listening to these like really, really like uh, maybe not world class quality, but but like professional quality vocalists and pianists and violinists, and it's spectacular. Meanwhile, in this audience, there's probably like 30, 40 people in the audience. You know, you're like, like, you know, just like people who can't control themselves. <laughs> and there's like this absolute like beauty in the blending of the perfection of everything. It was almost like an ayahuasca uh, an ayahuasca ceremony where you have the beauty of like what's going on and the Icaros of the, of the, of the Curanderos who's leading the ayahuasca ceremony. Meanwhile, people are like purging and screaming and crying in the background. And Orion there is filtered. 
totally unfiltered, but it's life. It is like the purity of like the beauty and the perfection of the chaos and everything. And if you could stand there in it, it's like, it's like literally, I mean, I say this, like I'm there, like, like I get moved by music very, very easily. And I'm listening to these vocalists thing and I'm like watching these people like like kind of like freak the F out and they're also on stage with bells and they're like I mean the whole thing was just like perfect so that happens and or like reverent and irreverent like the way so all of that happens okay all that happens I eventually go back I go to the wedding go and do the um, uh, I, 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 I officiate the wedding uh, the whole thing was like 15 minutes. They said they wanted it to be quick. It was this really like interesting mix of, 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 of family members. I give this fast and or in my opinion, this really well-received talk all about like quantum physics. And I'm like, the observer changes the outcome of the experiment. And all of you in the audience are the outcome are the observers of this experiment. So I like kind of said that they play a, an intricate role in this. And it was just like, it was really, in my opinion, I thought it was a, a fascinating way of setting up the, the, the ceremony afterwards. Like everyone loved it. Um, and once it was done, uh, once it was done, Christy and I, we, it was still light out. And I was like, hey, I want to go and drive to the street where I grew up on. It's just like five minutes from where we are. She's like, okay. So we drive to the street. And the way Columbia, Maryland set up is there are bike paths and wooded areas and, and um, tot lots everywhere in Columbia. And I'm like, I want to go and, and walk like my, the, the, the bike path and the tot lots of where I grew up. And so we're taking this walk and I'm just kind of explaining like, Oh, when I was a child, I did this here. And I'm like, I can't believe how much it's changed. I can't believe how small it is. And I lived here and this happened, like really like walking into like a deep, like if you will, like shamanic step into my own personal history. And we get to this place and I'm like, Oh wow. There's one place on the bike path. I always like, this was always the creepy section. You had to ride your bike under the canopy. It used to be like the bike path would be open, but this is the canopy. So it was dark and it was really windy. It was always kind of weird to ride back there. I'm like, let's go walk through this. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not creepy at all, but that was just my memory as a child. As soon as we walk through it, we find an owl feather. Like owl feathers aren't very common. What's an owl feather? Like, and I'm like, okay, this is absolutely perfect. So we pick up the owl feather and keep in mind at the wedding we just came to, this was a second marriage for um, the bride. And her first marriage, and her daughter was there as well, was married to a uh, Shoshone, a full-blood Shoshone uh, man. So there is like a very strong Native sort of feel uh, because the daughter, who is half Native, she played the violin. Like there, there's a strong feel on her close friend who is Indigenous to um, a Brazilian, uh, to, to Brazil, born and raised as an indigenous person. Brazil, she was at the wedding, so there's this like strong, like kind of like ancient, uh, uh, traditional culture was was there for the in the entire flavor of, of the day. So when we walk into it and we see the owl feather, that was great. And so we pick up the owl feather, we continue on the journey, and then when we double back, um, like it was kind of like a loop, um, I find like a full bird's nest. You know, sometimes you can find bird's nests, which are 
um, just on the on the ground, and there's a bird's nest on the ground, and um, you know that that was perfect perfect conclusion, a perfect setting for the owl's feather, which we found. So came back, and uh, we I forgot to sign the paperwork. Uh, they they forgot to ask me to sign the paperwork. So we had to stop by at the bride and groom's house. There was like a, a private sort of like reconvene party outside of the wedding. We signed that. We had like a small little ritual. And then we returned back to the river house um, that evening. And all of that happened on Sunday. And so the, the purpose of me bringing this up was this was a highly, highly uh, synchromistic, symbolically rich, uh, integrated on so many levels of an experience and it ties into what you and I were talking about on that car ride down. And it's just pointing out the, 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 the interwovenness of life that can show itself and that you can walk on and that will carry you once you like literally begin to move away from these, these, the false, the false lot storylines, the false narratives, the false timelines, which um, are holding, holding the 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 dream reality, which keeps you know contemporary reality in place. I just wanted to share that with with you and the the listening audience. Well placed. Wow, that's. That's interesting. You you find yourself in this same area where you grew up and uh for what seemed like based on your description a really uh seamless and kind of well organized uh wedding. I mean, I don't know if this is true to your experience, but uh, typically the weddings I've interacted with uh, are pretty chaotic. They, maybe, you know, as the officiator or the officiate, you, you might have a different uh, kind of experience as your role is a little different. But yeah, the, for the family members that I've seen get married, uh, definitely sensed no bridezilla energy for sure. None of that, but definitely uh, tension. And this sounds like the opposite of that. Well, there was undoubtedly there was undoubtedly a lot of um, there was a lot of energy. Um, that was the conversation where I said like there was like this. Uh, we all reconvened back at uh, the home of the bride and groom, and the daughter was there, and there were a couple of other people there. And they were explaining all the behind the scenes chaos and, and just kind of like laughing through it. So that definitely was there. It was, it was completely, um, it was a harmonious or a mirroring of that Steiner performance, I would say, of the day before of like the, the, the chaos of the mentally disabled with the beauty and the artistry of the setting and the performers, like all of it was there. It was in many ways, it was real life. So you are sort of playing this interesting role where all eyes are on you in a way, but all eyes are really, I mean, on the bride and the groom, right? So you're kind of playing this like secondary, very important role 
and you are kind of orchestrating the energy, at least in that moment. So I'm wondering, I guess, uh, do you did you feel a sense like you your uh, powers as the officiate were amplified because you were grounded, connected to the place that you're in? This was a place that's very familiar to you. Uh, interesting question. Um, I would say that um, it definitely felt different than previous experiences of officiating weddings. Um, but the, to, to me, at least, my first thought would, would credit that difference to changes within me as opposed to the setting. But maybe it was a combination of, of the two in, in many ways. And, and I don't, and I'm going to say this and it's going to sound, it's going to sound self-focused and that's true, but in the best ways, like this is true for everyone. The center of the universe is in each person's own consciousness. The center of the universe is in my consciousness. It's in your consciousness and so forth. And you're experiencing it. That's like, uh, and I mean, this is a self, a self, um, a selfishness different than selfish, like only thinking of oneself. Uh, I mean, selfishness in an awareness of how reality is experienced through your point of view. And from that, um, I'm, I'm aware I was very aware of this ceremony being as much about an initiation for myself as it was for the bride and the groom um, and anyone else who kind of like was going through some or like was a, a, a key participant within that, within that um, ceremony, almost in the same way when we did the, Freemasonic presentation and I concluded that I'm like this is an initiation for me and you guys are my witnesses like life is a series of initiations mm. or at least that's one way in which one can appreciate the different events within one's life yeah and so I looked at it that way and this is like this is a I'm in a um like if I were to go look in the broader context of where I am in my life, like I'm going through initiations, like there are big changes which are happening and it was reflected or marked by me playing this efficient role. And this is why I kind of said in the beginning, like when, when I saw the, the story of me eating sour cream, thinking it was whipped cream. <laughs> I've told at least 15 times in my life. I was like, going to ask you about that. I have never heard that. You didn't tell me that. And uh, I was going to ask you, like, you know, wh what are your thoughts on the difference there? You, you know, sat from sour to sweet whipped cream. Well, it was, it, it, well, there's that level, but it's more so if you look at the way I, I said that it, this was a demonstration that I'm on the correct timeline, if you will. And I used yeah. her timeline with, with quotation marks around it. What I meant by that was when I did the wedding for Matt and Bridget, and this may have been like five years ago, um, in the reception afterwards, uh, like very much to your point, 
that yes, it's about the bride and the groom, but if you're an officiant, like there's, there's an attention on you. And whenever I'm an officiant, like I, I'm, I'm good. I'm very good at the stories, the speech or whatever, the opening remarks. And so, uh, a lot of afterwards, a lot of people were talking to me and I was kind, I was in a, like a post, a post performance high, if you will. And so there was a lot of awareness. There was a lot of attention on me and I was hamming it up. I can do that. And I was doing that in the line at, to, at the, at this, this taco bar, if you will. But I would, I don't know why I didn't think that this was ta- a taco bar and that would be sour cream because it looks so much like whipped cream and I love whipped cream. But in my mind, I was like, oh, there's a bowl of whipped cream and I've always wanted a big bowl of homemade whipped cream where I could just take a spoonful out of it. Like that probably goes back to my childhood. In fact, I know it goes back to my childhood. So I can remember doing that with Cool Whip. If you know what Cool Whip was, I used to do that as a child, like take a spoonful of Cool Whip and eat it. And so it's funny that I'm back in my childhood. So I saw that at Matt and Bridget's and I ate it. And like, because I was handing it up and I was talking to people beforehand, there were all of these eyes on me and I couldn't spit out this with this sour cream and I had to eat it. (laughs) And they all just watched you eat sour cream. Like it was funny. Like, like the whole thing was like, it was funny. Like I, like when I tell that story, I tell that story is like, you know, the, the punch, the punchlines on me. And I've told that story many times like that. And then to, I literally saw like two, two, two connections to that wedding happened right before this wedding this weekend, the guy with the rocker. And then I literally saw Matt and Bridget that day. I, um, I, I didn't mention this as I did the build up to, to Saturday. We stopped at central market in Lancaster because we had time to kill before going to the reception. And, and we went there and we saw Matt and Bridget. It's like not, I don't see them regularly. So to go and literally bump into them and then go to this, this reception and literally see a bowl of whipped cream. I've never seen a bowl of whipped cream anywhere. I've only been looking for a bowl of whipped cream. And so when I saw it, when I saw it in light of everything else, which is unfolding in my life, and I am someone who sees and understands reality from a mystical symbolic lens, I'm like, I finally found the bowl of whipped cream. I thought I found it right before, but it was a trick. It was the sour cream. But now I'm in the bowl of whipped cream, which then reminded me, like, if I think anything is off in my life, how could it be? Because the whipped cream was here. So going back to your initial question, you were like, well, did you feel more grounded? Did you feel more connected? I felt more connected and grounded just from the fact of that whipped cream. Because I was like, I went to this wedding. I went to this, this event and... I really didn't do the preparation, which I normally would have done in the past. Um, and there was a bit of, there was a great deal of internal relaxation, which I carried into it greater than what I had in the past. And I think it's, it probably has more to do with the fact that I, I was like, it doesn't matter. I'm on the right timeline. I had the bowl of whipped cream. It doesn't matter what I think. And even when I was on the wrong timeline, everything was, was right. Because now the only way I'm on the correct, I know that I'm on the correct timeline is because I had enough awareness of the false timeline. 
So when I talk about collapsing false timelines, I talk about this like collapsing uh, false narratives. Um, this is where that rubber meets the road in my actual experiential reality. Um, to me, the the value comes, you know, to the listening audience. You know, I was, possibly this is entertaining, but more so is it's a demonstration. It's a demonstration of what it looks like, um, you know, and this is just one of many ways, but a demonstration of what it looks like as one becomes more and more aware of the mystery of the, of the structure that supports them in the mystery of the life of their experience in which they are the center of reality. And so when they hear another person talking about it, it is true to encourage and to bet and to, to um, inspire like, okay, let, let, let me look at, let me, let me look at my life this way. Let me understand my life from this dream walking lens from where, where it is a living communication between my inner world and the outer world. And I'm seeing this, 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 this constant feedback loop. Um, time and time again, I just need to have the eyes to see and the ears to listen. Hmm. Yeah. And this is all the scene stuff. Like that's why we brought Austin in. Like this is, this is much more of how reality works than any of the other stuff. And it requires courage and it requires humility and it requires like a joyfulness and it requires like a, a, a playfulness and, and it requires like an attention to detail and it requires like an attention to like, like going with the flow. It's all of that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. He's been stacking up for you, Mike. I, I, uh, yeah, I'm excited to follow along with the, the next steps of your journey. It seems like you're heading towards, uh, more whipped cream, less sour cream. So on Sunday, I leave for a four-week trip out west. Yeah. We're driving in a car. Like, I mean, it's kind of like, like, it's, it's, uh, uh, like, this is a huge dive into the unknown. Like, in terms of the itinerary, in terms of the vehicle, in terms of the budget, all this sort of stuff. Um, we're bringing the starboard. We're bringing the arrow. We've got like a couple key places which we're going, but half of it is like, all right, let's go see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And so holding the awareness of what I just described uh, to me is a very, very um, important uh, um, internal compass to use for this next step of like really embracing mystery. Right. Are you familiar with the author Rolf Potts? No. Oh, Mike, you should, uh, well, it, to be specific, he does more, um, he writes more about international travel. His, his writings are more geared for people who are sort of, uh, jet setting, whereas your sort of uh, van van life, right, or <laughs> truck life for the next few weeks, and uh, 
Yeah, either way, he has a podcast I recently listened to called Deviate. Deviate meaning deviate from your normal path. And it just, it fits right in to the scene and this wayfinding randomness that I think, you know, is really what we've spent a lot of time discussing, not just uh, in this conversation, but in the course of our uh, many conversations and more than 50 conversations on your handbook for the apocalypse. Um, and yeah, well, this show will be on both that show and my family thinks I'm crazy, but um, it just, it seems like, go ahead. No, God, I don't mean, I didn't mean to interrupt. Please, please. Well, it just seems like the imperative is always on foregoing any preconceived notions because it seems like that's where we tend to get in our own ways not just you and i but just we being the mass i in general yes well and also focused upon yes 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 like this is so it's funny so this is what i said in the opening remarks um talking about the wedding and the mystery of life and quantum physics and all and i i i said one of the foundational tenets is the observer affects the outcome of the experiment and then i said make no mistake your life is the experiment the moment you came out of your mother's womb the experiment began every day that you get out of bed the experiment continues and so to go and to really embrace that and that's going to embracing it is unique for everyone right like you know one person's one person like wait one person's um uh deviance or to deviate from their normal path is going is going to be completely different from someone else so someone who is all it means is like being able to do things uh in a a new and different way. And to me, that is a major part of this experiment, which we're calling life. So with that spirit, what's different about these next few weeks for you? I mean, cause uh, I, I guess we couldn't, we can't know, right? <laughs> well, no, exactly. I mean, that's been, I would say, um, I mean, all of this began. All of this really began for me on that Freemasonic presentation. Like after that, moving to Baltimore, moving to no nomadic countryside, moving to the farmhouse, now moving to the river house, and now doing this four-week trip. Yeah. And so, and I'm certain when I return from that, like, you know, what's going to be next? And there's this, this, um, doing that, but then not just like taking a four week trip, taking a four week trip with the conscious, with the very, being very conscious that I'm doing this as an arrow circulator. I've got a Barris's arrow, whatever the hell that means. I'm the feather. I'm like Juan. 
I've got the starboard and there's starboard ceremonies, which are scheduled along the way. All that happens in the starboard ceremony is bringing a very, very clear awareness to where all the planets are above, above the heaven. Like, like bringing awareness of being alive now, not being stuck in the dream, you know, loosening the assemblage points that hold the dream together. You know, that, those assemblage points, I've said this a million times, is like, you know, believing that Monday's a real thing. That's a dream. It's literally what a dream is. There's no such thing as Monday. But the entire world is based upon this concept that there's a Monday. Like, if you don't stop and tell, remind yourself on a regular basis that Monday is just a concept, you are unconsciously agreeing that everything built upon Monday, built upon the idea that Monday is a real thing. Like, there are, re- there are real time markers, the lunations, the equinox to solstice to equinox. Like, that's real time markers. Seven-day week, that's not real. And so that holds a dream in place. And so by stepping into like what I just described is a mental concept and then tying that into a actual physical practice of like, okay, that's a mental concept. I'm going to travel the quarters with an arrow as an arrow circulator as a barrister and just bring awareness to like what literally is happening above our heads so that there's no longer any sort of like, at least I can create Space for myself and, and and all those that participate in these collapsing false timeline ceremonies. That's what a starboard ceremony is, and then just seeing what the f happens. Like that's what this is, and it is. You're absolutely right. We have we, you and I and all those who are listening, aka the witnesses, have been on this journey since we began this door handbook for the apocalypse is revelation. That's what an apocalypse is. Collapsing of one world to give birth to another one. Yeah. Well, it's been uh, quite the dance, Mike. I appreciate you spending so much time uh, with me on this podcast. Uh, It does feel like the impetus to record the show has waned a bit, and I don't want to I don't want to intrude on your four weeks because I feel like you have the the right to, you know, sort of abstain from technology as you have and, and, and you know, kind of going deeper and deeper uh, into the underworld away from <laughs> technology. I don't know if that's a, a good analogy, but I We're just... Gonna connect. No, definitely. I want to go and record. I don't know when, but Ooh, I, I'll make... My point is is just I'm not I don't want to bother you is my point. So the listeners are listening. They're like, we want more shows. You guys got to do it. You guys got to tell Mike, you know, you got to bug him for me because I don't want to bug Mike. I want him to have a good time. But I also I think, uh, you know, there's no reason to uh, let the show get in the way of this, because I think after uh, four weeks or however long it takes, you know, transpires, I think we'll have one hell of an episode, uh, regardless, right? If we, I would like to try to go and do something midway. Okay. Well then go okay. to do that because this is, this is a living, breathing, um, ex- uh, uh, experience, a shared, a shared experience, which is happening. Like the witness affects the outcome of the experiment. 
it is an it is as important to me to have a witness of this as it is to actually have it the experience so it's it's paramount that we talk about it hmm. at least from my perspective and the fact that people want to want to listen that sounds great like um, I'll have access to my phone most likely you know email is the best way to communicate with me uh, I no longer have a website um, I stopped paying the the premiums for my web hoster and I thought I was going to have like the, um, but I still have my, my URL is for, or my domain name is, is good until December. But because I don't have that tied to a premium website, uh, there's no place to put it. There's no place for anyone to really find me. They can still go to Linktree uh, cause I would, um, I can still do sessions on the road or communicate with people. Um, they could still send me emails. Um, and if anyone's along the way, we're going to be taking the trip, um, Virginia to Tennessee, to Oklahoma city, to New Mexico, out to Southern California, up to the Sequoias, back to Southern California, through Sedona to Colorado, back through New Mexico, and then back to, um, to Pennsylvania. Like that's our, that's the, the general path. Wow. Yeah. You got some gas cans? Uh, yeah, we need some, right? You're going to need two or three if you're taking that if you're taking that route because you're going to want to have one filled up in case you end up miles and miles away from a gas station and another in case you don't make it to the the next gas station as soon as you cuz yeah, there are spots out there where you don't get a gas station for a couple hours. So, yeah, definitely have those gas cans. All right, brother. I appreciate the <laughs> final. Of course. So I appreciate the opportunity to give the update on um, from this weekend, and uh, I think it's a good place to wrap this up. Absolutely. Thank you, Mike, and... Uh, Happy trails. Definitely your info's in the description for folks who want to follow up with you. If they want a starboard session, if they just want to get in touch, wish you happy trails. Or if they're on the route that you just described, maybe they'll uh, buy you a coffee or something. Yeah, buy me coffee, fill up the gas tank. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. All right, Mike. Love talking to you. This has been great. And, uh, yeah, best of luck. Thank you, brother. Talk to you soon. All right. Have a good one. Bye.
that was our two-parter. First part with Juan from the One on One podcast. Second part, a little taste of what you can listen to more of on our show, Your Handbook for the Apocalypse, which is available on the Susquehanna Alcohol podcast feed. Go and check that out. Support Michael Wan. The links to do that are in the description. He is going on a 25-day journey west. So he's going to need your support, whether it's uh, just a financial contribution or maybe you're someone who lives uh, out west on his route and you can go and buy him a coffee or treat him to dinner, have a conversation with him. Whatever it is, reach out to him. He's got his link tree there, and it's in the description of this episode. As for me, you could support this show on Patreon, Substack, or Rockfin. And of course, we are rocking and rolling towards 200. Be there. Make it a possibility for us to get on the road with this van, get out and travel and make some episodes, some video gold, some real interesting content interviewing people uh, where they live rather than doing things over zoom i think this is the next step it's the next phase for this podcast and maybe even uh, youtube and rockfin as well so please support this show and join us on this journey by being one of the 200 patreons on our patreon supporter that's the goal we want to get to 200 patreons by august so if you can be that last 200th person if you're the 200th person i'm going to send you a very special gift from my bookshelf it's going to be a book that costs at least 40 dollars or more so it's going to be a very special book Uh, i hope you enjoy it but it's only going to go to the 200th patron i'm going to be watching when there's 199 So sign up. I don't know if the Patreon number is visible, so maybe you can go and check before you sign up. But either way, sign up, support the show, and if you're the 200th Patreon supporter, you will get a free $40 book from my book collection, $40 or more. So that's the the offer I'm putting out there. We'll see what happens. I want to give a big shout-out to The Hit Kit, I just put together an episode with my friend Garrett, the man behind the hit kit. Him and I discussed a very interesting topic that I won't say anything about. It's going to be a surprise, so look forward to that episode with Garrett, the man behind the hit kit. One of my favorite ways to get lit. I say it all the time. It's the number one gizmo that keeps your lighter, your joints, your blunts, your spliffs whatever you're rolling whatever you're token on you can keep it safe and sound right there with your lighter in your hit kit so won't pick it up today with the promo code crazy save 15 percent off at checkout and uh yeah like i said look forward to that interview with garrett look forward to more products from the hit kit he is a real whiz he's coming up with all sorts of uh, interesting devices interesting contraptions gizmos so I'm looking forward to what comes next. And speaking of what's coming next, we may have a very brand spanking new sponsor very soon. So stay tuned for that. Um, Not to replace our old sponsor, but to add 
uh, another to the sponsor family. Of course, we'd love to have this show supported only by listeners, so it helps that both of the sponsors that have reached out have reached out because they're listeners of the show. Um, That's awesome. I love that. That, to me, is value for value, right? We don't need to reach out to Nike or McDonald's or Walmart because they don't care. They're not going to listen to this show. But Garrett, the man behind HitKit, go to hitkit.us or the HitKit on Instagram to see what he's doing. He quit his job to become a self-made machine, a self-made success. Okay, and I think he is doing that. He's created a product that people need. It solves a problem. It's out there for us stoners. You don't have to even be a stoner. You can enjoy nice cigars and utilize a hit kit. You can enjoy uh, a sub, you know tobacco product and enjoy the hit kit. So whatever whatever you're smoking on, get yourself a hit kit. Anyways, enough with this. Thank you, folks, for being here. Episode 301, and we are on our way to 400. I was going to make this a 411 episode, hence the clips, but I kind of ran out of steam and thought, let's just put these two uh, parts of interviews together. Uh, My buddy Juan and I, my buddy Michael Juan and I, and you, my friend listeners of this very awesome podcast so thank you for doing what you do tuning in supporting the show sticking around for the intros supporting us on the social medias like subscribe five stars comment positive things all that good stuff and i'll catch you next time immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now Extra terrestrial, trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess too much off of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. I be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from. And like a hundred years, we went saw bomb before guns. Check the facts, check the Fed, check the stars. Stanley Mines was murked for a water fuel cell car. They each they own, you could stick with your old ways. But eat the rich, you drink the motherfucking Kool Aid. And I can see the red on your lip stain. White skin, blue collar, pure American made. Fuck it. Keep your blood soaked heritage And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts but never question the parenting Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy The morning in the net feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm on American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy Think that I'm off in the deep end. One too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for a military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor, and ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crack. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. 
Talking like this, got kin talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up camp. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy. Good morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm on American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged, baby. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Anything out, so 